the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a small favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's an absolute delight to have John Price with us today. Mr. Price is the author of an important and timely work of history, The Last Liberal Republican, an insider's perspective on Nixon's surprising social policy, brand new from the University Press of Kansas. John Price is a graduate of Grinnell College, the Harvard Law School, and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. As a young man, he entered the political arena and rapidly rose to be a top aide to President Richard Nixon. He subsequently moved into the banking arena in a series of important and prestigious leadership roles over the next four decades. John Price, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Jim, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be your guest. Look forward to it. Well, John Price, for many millions of Americans, Richard Nixon was an enduring presence on the political scene. Along with Franklin Roosevelt, Nixon uniquely was on five major party national presidential tickets. But today, many people know him only from history books or popular culture. Why should we study and reflect on the record of President Nixon now? He is one of the most intriguing, complex, intelligent, and controversial people ever to inhabit the White House. And not only that, I mean, he's not just a, an interesting figure and character, but he also was a hinge in the Republican Party's fate in the last half of the 20th century and uh, really was the last echo uh, of a tradition that had been profound and important in the party from Teddy Roosevelt on through Governor Thomas Dewey of New York and Eisenhower himself. And uh, so he is someone to be looked at as the end of a a line, uh, the last gasp, if you will, of sort of a a 20th century form of moderate republicanism. But there are threads that bring us right up to today, and I think we'll be having fun talking about those as well. Well, the Nixon administration is recalled by many for its foreign policy achievements, notably the opening to China and the arms limitation agreements with the Soviet Union. Your book makes a compelling case that his domestic policies were also incredibly significant and their influence continues to this day. Would you mind expounding on that a little bit? I'd be delighted. Uh, I actually saw the president when he was in exile, if you will, on Elba at San Clemente a couple of years after he had resigned from office. And I, being a domestic guy in his eyes, uh, uh, we opened the conversation about domestic policy. But I said, you know, people have exactly the impression that my interviewer is uh, raising right now, that that you were concerned really only with foreign policy. And he said, well, obviously I loved it, but he said, look at what we tried to do in domestic, domestic policy. And 
I, I think what's important to think about with Nixon and domestic affairs is that, that he brought to it much of the thought process and the structuring that he gave to foreign affairs. You talked about salt, you talked about China. Those were all massive movements on a chessboard, a three-dimensional chessboard for Nixon in foreign affairs. But interestingly, in the domestic arena, he also he embraced and tried to roll out a strategy, what he called an income strategy. But my, my main point is that uh, for him, uh, he brought to both these arenas a certain way of thinking, which was almost uniquely his, of, of orderliness and of comprehensiveness. And I hope we'll talk more about that. Let's dig in a little to two of the key areas where you and President Nixon were engaged. One is on incomes policy, which today sounds a lot like some kind of universal basic income. And another was universal health care. Would you please tell us a little bit about those and what the lessons are from President Nixon's time that might actually still be very relevant in the 21st century? Well, that's that's what I meant by the threads that run right up to today. And you picked the two items which are totally contemporaneous. And in the sense, really, that Nixon was looking at issues almost entirely similar to what's going on today in the two areas you talk about. Let's talk for about welfare or income maintenance for a moment first. <clears throat> um, the context for Nixon and welfare reform was the late 1960s. We can't remember it today clearly, but there had been an absolute explosion in the numbers of people on welfare, on public assistance. And Pat Moynihan, who worked for Nixon as a Democrat in the White House, had pointed out four or five years before Nixon's election that for the first time in 30 years, uh, the two lines had gone apart from each other, the two lines being unemployment on the one hand and welfare on the other. And what was uniquely happening in the mid-60s was that the line for unemployment was going down, but the line on welfare rolls was going up. So Nixon had a substantive problem, he had a political problem. But how he chose to go about it was in a way which is absolutely resonant today. He looked at the whole picture. He said, well, we have welfare people, people often northern, urban, female-headed, often black families. But he said, that's not the real issue. Not, the real issue is not categories. The issue is poverty. The issue is family poverty, is child poverty. And so that's what he focused on. It was an across-the-board attack on poverty, which once again is back in the headlines. And what Nixon did with it was he created a proposal which, interestingly, had very strong bipartisan roots, even in 1969, but which nobody, no prior president had ever grasped and run with. And Nixon grasped it and he ran with it, and he proposed what amounted to a universal basic income. And on health care, uh, that was a matter also of profound importance to President Nixon, and he fought in a very 
sustained way for changes in. And Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, who was one of his top antagonists, later said that it was one of his greatest regrets that he had not come together with Nixon to make that happen in, say, 1970. What would you want to share about that whole interaction and situation? First, I think that it's really helpful in this context to realize that Richard Nixon had, he was a human being. He had been raised in a home in which the lack of health insurance for want of income had led to crushing emotional blows in the loss of two of his brothers to tuberculosis. When his mother had to move separately several times with each of them to a sanatorium in Arizona to help work with other patients to pay for her own boy's care, neither survived. Nixon had a, a visceral concern about the ability for families to deal with health costs. Also, he had a tradition from his very first days in Congress of an interest in health insurance and health care. Uh, everybody was surprised, of course, when Harry Truman got elected in 1948. It was expected Tom Dewey was the runaway winner. When Harry Truman came back into town after the election, he came in with an idea of a Medicare for all. Only Medicare had not yet been invented. A government health care program, a single payer program. Nixon wasn't on board that. Nixon wasn't either on board with the conservative Republican reaction to Harry Truman. Harry Truman said, uh, you know, we want total universal government provided, government funded care. Bob Taft, then the key Republican and others were saying, no, no, let's defer to the states. Let's see what they want to do. Nixon said, no, no, let's take a new route. Let's take a route using the private insurance sector, but assuring that everybody has access to health care and health insurance. And he joined up with several Republican liberals uh, in the Congress elected then in 48 to offer a proposal which was shockingly like the one that he came up with in February 1971, namely a private sector provision of health insurance, but with universal coverage, with an employer mandate that all employers offer it to their to their employees and with a federal subsidy for employees who couldn't put the premium. So there was there was an interesting long uh, interest on the part of Nixon in uh, a universal and an available and affordable health program. And of course, what links it into today is that that was basically Obamacare. That was basically what was passed under Obama, signed into law, and what the Republicans fought, not giving it a single vote. That was basically Richard Nixon's proposal. Well, let's do a counterfactual, if you'll indulge us for one moment on this, John Price. Let's say that President Nixon did not have the Watergate scandal, or there were no tapes. Or somehow his presidency was not wrecked in the Watergate situation. What do you think his main domestic priorities would have been in that second term when he would have been coming out with a tremendous uh, popular mandate for himself, though a bit of a mixed one with the Congress? 
I think that the health insurance one is a very important one because in uh, post uh, the election, that is in 1973-74, after the election, which came to be haunted by uh, Watergate, Nixon came rip-roaring back with an even stronger proposal for health insurance coverage. And here, it was fascinating, uh, you, you had a lot of bipartisan efforts across the aisle. Uh, Ted Kennedy was, was initially intrigued, and, and Nixon and Kennedy were working covertly together. Kennedy was the de Democratic and liberal lion of the Senate. He was Mr. National Health Care, National Health Insurance. His main engine was the United, Mine, United Auto Workers and the unions. And they, of course, wanted a single payer program like Harry Truman had called for. But what, what happened was that Nixon and Kennedy were quietly and secretly groping their way toward a deal. Now, you might say that Watergate pushed that forward a little bit because it meant something to Nixon if he could have salvaged a national health insurance program, and it might have offset the concerns of Watergate. But even if Watergate hadn't occurred, I think Nixon's gut was there. I think he wanted to do this. And there were secret negotiations in the basement of an Episcopal church on Capitol Hill for several months just before Nixon resigned in the Watergate scandal. Another thing that Nixon uh, was credited with was looking at a government-wide reorganization in a second term. And I understand you were had left the White House at that point, but you had such a key role in in all the domestic affairs. Is there anything you might share on that? And a quick background for listeners, particularly younger listeners, uh, there has not been a major reorganization effort really at a big scale since President Truman's administration. And to my knowledge, Nixon was the last one to really seriously, beyond rhetorically, look into something like that. Well, in fact, uh, prior to the 72 election, of course, one of the most important organizations occurred under Nixon, which was the creation of the Office of Management and Budget and the Domestic Council. Those were uh, as important a reorganization as the creation of the National Security Act under Harry Truman uh, 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier. Uh, but on your point about the, the major overhaul of the domestic departments, uh, Nixon did really try that. And it was it would have been dramatic. It would have been functional. It would have brought huge efficiencies to government. But maybe that's not the way government works. And what he was doing was he was saying, look, we have these crazy situations where uh, so many functions which are related to each other aren't housed under the same leadership. Instead, they're all over the place. And you worked at the Environmental Protection Administration. And with EPA, what Nixon did there was he pulled together, correct me, something like 40 different programs in a dozen different departments or 20 different departments and agencies into the EPA. What Nixon was trying to do with that massive reorganization plan number one was to take functions like community development or like natural resources or like human services and or like agriculture and to put them into 
departments which had programs really related to one another subsumed under a single leadership where it ran where it came a cropper was the fact that again you know this so well that the hill the congress is organized along lines of committee jurisdiction and so there were built-in inhibitions or uh, just sort of structural difficulties for for him to break down those those walls between committees and to move stuff around. Um, again, you're you're right. I had left by the time that happened, but I sure saw it coming, and I sure understood the lay of the land, as you did from having worked with with uh, the wonderful Senator Alan Simpson and others like John Chafee on the Hill. Well, that's a great segue to another question that'll interest a lot of us. And that is particularly for younger listeners, they may be thrown off when they hear you use this term liberal Republicans. I don't think they exist anymore, uh, or at least if they do, they're pretty well hidden in the background. Could you tell a little bit more about that? You referred to it earlier and how you interpret the changes in the two parties since yeah. that time. Yeah, thank you. That's a that's a wonderful question. and. Uh, it defies easy description. I mean, even in the 1950s, which was what Dwight Eisenhower, the president, called modern republicanism, uh, it was also called moderate republicanism, it was called liberal republicanism, it was called Eisenhower republicanism. It was a strand within the Republican Party, which, as I said at the outset, uh, really became most visible under Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was a, a campaigner against uh, uh, things like foul food practices and, and drug practices. He created the FDA. He uh, went up against the big business trusts. So he was a progressive or liberal Republican. And then uh, that sort of basically changed in the Hoover Depression period. Herbert Hoover had been a liberal, if you will, liberal Republican when he was uh, first coming on the national stage. But then Tom Dewey, the governor of New York, uh, who was quite a remarkable man, was a true progressive, a true liberal on everything from civil rights to health care. Uh, and he became the head of one of the two major wings of the Republican Party. He was the more progressive, more Northeastern, more liberal wing, meaning they believed in things like uh, unions, they believed in health care, uh, they believed in civil rights strongly, and they were operating in counterpoint to more congressional Republicans who were more distrustful of government or more anxious to defer entirely to states. I think the real clincher, the real key is that Richard Nixon and, quote, liberal Republicans believed that the United States government, the federal government, was not an enemy, but it had a really crucial function to play in addressing the needs of people, particularly human needs and health needs, uh, welfare needs, subsistence needs. And this is where the trains went down different tracks, even in the middle of Nixon's administration. He remained, as long as he could, sort of true to what was in him viscerally. 
But the tug of the party, and particularly with Ronald Reagan, for whom you work, uh, was going in a different direction. The slogan, the mantra was, a government is the problem, not the solution to problems. Well, the, the liberal Republicans are also identified with the so-called WASP elite, the Northeastern, predominantly Protestant individuals who in the first half of the 20th century set the tone of a lot of political, financial, foreign policy, and cultural issues to what extent did the decline of the liberal Republicans uh, occur in concert with the decline of the WASP establishment? And to this extent, was Nixon a transitional figure, one who in some ways had more in common with the rising meritocracy of that moment among younger people than with the older WASP establishment that he seemed at once to admire and sometimes maybe even resent? Now, you've, you've put your finger on it, uh, Jim. Uh, he is not himself in any way an elitist establishment figure, even though uh, in many ways his, his mentors, Tom Dewey, uh, certainly were from that wing of the party. Uh, I think your main drift of your point is correct. It was a changing topography. Curiously, Nixon felt himself aligned more in in a gut way with uh, people who were union members. Uh, he he said he told Ehrlichman in one meeting, the notes of which I read, that he said, you know, I understand labor far better than most any Republicans I know. And he was probably right. Uh, but at the same time, he aspired, as you said, to be accepted by the establishment. He had been, in fact, accepted to go to college at Harvard College, and he didn't have the money to do it. He went to a small liberal arts sectarian college, a bit like my own at Grinnell, um, in, uh, his in California. And he always felt this tension, this lack of being accepted. And uh, that was geographic. It wasn't just ethnic, you know, Protestant, upper class. It was geographic as well. Uh, he felt California was much more wide open than New York, in which I was trying to go back in and run in politics. And he, he said to me, you know, you've got a real, you got a road to hoe there because it's a tight, tight ship in New York. The establishment controls it. Could we please talk a little bit about your personal impress, impressions of President Nixon, what he was like? Could you tell us about when you first met him, your impressions? The first time I ever met him uh, was at a small dinner two or three days before he announced for the 1968 uh, presidential nomination. Uh, he was on the brink of going up to New Hampshire and filing. And it was a small dinner at a, a New York business club. Uh, and it was with business people. I was the ringer. I was the, the, the youngster and and was there at, uh, thanks to Dan Lufkin, who actually was a strong environmentalist. Uh, and the conversation was fascinating because also present was a guy to whom I'm not related, Bob Price, who was uh, deputy mayor of New York City, but had been the guy who 
uh, had guided John Lindsay's political campaign for a long time and was a brilliant political tactician. So the conversation began with Nixon talking tactics and talking politics with Bob Price. And he was obviously just uh, in the game. He was, he was fascinated by it. He, he was every, just every point he was meeting and, and uh, responding to and then asking another question. When Price had to leave, the conversation became more, what could I call it, more strategic, more Olympian. He was talking about things like Middle Eastern oil strategy and maintaining sea lanes of communication open to be sure oil shipment from the Middle East was reaching Japan and the US and Europe. Um, and, and the one impression I took away, though, was that he he was uh, going to be intrigued with some domestic policy because I first I aired with him for the first time the negative income tax, a universal basic income that night in January 1968. And he said, you know, he said, I, I cannot campaign on that. But he said, we've got to do something about the welfare system. And so my first impression was deeply political, intensely politics, tactics, uh, you know, in the game, but also very, very broad, geostrategic, and at the same time, there was a, there was this uh, bulb that went off with him about talking about a really serious domestic issue. It's very interesting. Uh, Murray Kempton, who was a major columnist of that era, on a man of the left in New York, said of Richard Nixon that he had the best political antenna that Kempton had ever seen, and he gave an example that when he talked to Nixon very early on about John Lindsay, that Nixon dismissed Lindsay's future and said, no, in four years, he'll be gone. He'll be a Democrat. There's no future for him on the path he's on. Right. It sounds like Nixon just had this tremendous strategic sense informed by a real eye for detail on things like politics or sports. It's a very interesting aspect of his character. Yeah, I think you I think you've put your finger on it. And it is uh, it is so profoundly him that it was hard for him to get people to look beyond that. Everybody thought he was just uh, totally obsessed by the politics, that he was ruthless, that he was brilliant at it, except when it came ultimately ultimately to himself in the Watergate scandal. But he had this, this acute ability to observe a political situation. Uh, but there was so much more. And he wasn't just a, uh, I guess to continue with an answer to your question, what did I take away? I, I didn't know him for the length, nor in the depth that a Pat Buchanan knew him from the right, nor that a, a Ray Price knew him, uh, no relation who was his chief speechwriter, nor Dwight Chapin, who was his appointment secretary for years and who will have a book coming out about uh, Nixon in winter, coming up this coming winter. I didn't know him in either the depth or over the duration of those folks, but I had an instinct about him. And it was that, yes, he was, he was a man of this intense ambition, this acute uh, talent for for tactics and and as I say ruthlessness, 
But underlying that seems to be some sense of purpose, some sense uh, which I'm convinced he took with him from his Quaker background, that he needed to leave something behind him that had been worthwhile. And he, you've read the book, and in the book I note that as he left, he referred to his mother Hannah as a saint and almost broke down. And people would tend to scoff at that and just say, well, he, he was either, uh, you know, just trying to make political capital out of it or, or, you know, being extreme about it. But it was really true. I mean, he, he I think, had a sense from her that life had a purpose and he was meant to deliver on it. And I think operating at some somewhat below the surface level was this, this gyroscope, which caused him to keep thinking about what he should be doing that would, not just on the foreign policy side, but in people's lives, uh, make it a little better. Interesting, if I could make the point, Pat Buchanan, uh, whose book White House Wars is in a way a counterpoint to mine, and as I say, Pat knew it a lot longer and a lot closer than I ever ever came. But Pat says about Nixon on the foreign policy side, he said, you know, he said, there was Richard Nixon uh, talking about uh, making swords into plowshares and that nations shall no longer rise up against nation in war. And he said all of that, you know, from the Bible. And he said, the amazing thing about Richard Nixon is that he really believed it. And it informed the kinds of things you were talking about 15, 20 minutes ago about the strategic arms limitation talks with Russia and the Chinese initiative. But I think too, that as Pat Buchanan did with Nixon's view on peace and being the peacemaking president, I think at some level that wasn't disclosed by him, he had that same need to leave a stamp in something, quote, good. Well, inevitably, discussions about Richard Nixon turn to speculations about his character. And how is it that a person of such surpassing abilities, as you present, conscientiousness, strategic sense, determination, resilience, would end up, in effect, if I could be forgiven for being simplistic, but self-destructed yes. in a rather extraordinary way? What was? How do you interpret that then and now? Well, I, I can say that it was best put to me by Richard Nixon's law partner, Leonard Garment. Len Garment was uh, the head of litigation at the law firm where Richard Nixon became the, the main senior partner when he came east from California. And Garment worked very closely with him and kept working with him apart from law. He got deeply involved in the campaign. He was my boss during the general election campaign. Len Garment said to me more than once, he said, Richard Nixon has an angel on one shoulder and a dark angel on the other. And he said, and others of my friends who'd worked for him said the same thing. You know, it's almost as though he was two people and they can't easily be, be reconciled. And you'll, you'll hear it popping up from friends of mine like Dick Nathan who would say, 
you know, once in a while he'd be in for a meeting and Nixon would be dyspeptic and, and uh, you know, sounding the way he does on some of the tapes. And the next day or the next hour, he would always, he would then be totally engaged in the substance of a complicated social policy issue like welfare reform or food stamps. And uh, it, it's partly, I think it's just partly how he was shaped by his, his childhood and his circumstances. Uh, one of his recent biographers says that his dad was, was very harsh to him and, and that it was a very difficult relationship. Their financial circumstances, they were desperately poor, but they were straightened. And so he always felt that. I mentioned in my book that uh, he went finally to law school on a scholarship but he had no no money for for the uh, you know room and board, and so he lived in a shack which he squatted in on the edge of a golf course. So all these things, and then his efforts to reach out to more establishment, wealthy, traditional figures, were, if not rebuffed formally, often he was treated with what he discerned was was disrespect or even contempt. And so there was this tangle of emotions in it, uh, which, which led to what at one point uh, I called his curdling, which I, I really believe happened. Uh, he had tried so hard to win the, the respect, if not the affection, of a lot of the people that you've been talking about. Uh, he's a complicated man, an emotionally complicated man. Did his views evolve as he grew older, do you think, about his own contribution and his own tremendous strengths and then disappointing aspects? Yeah, I th I, it's hard for me to say because I didn't know him in early days. I've only read perhaps the same biographies over the years that you have or articles. Um, I think his his bitterness perhaps grew greater. I think in some ways there was a, a consistency. I think his his first reaction was to be more on the side of concern about human services and, and human situations. And I don't think that ever left him, except when he was really being really pressured uh, by the politics and particularly the intra-party politics as they grew more dramatic uh, with the Reagan rise. Um, but I, I, you know, it's hard for me to say then and, and later. <laughs> I knew only later, really. Let's talk a little bit about early 21st century politics. Uh, what do you think can be learned from the tremendous work you've done in chronicling this? What would you like people to take away and to maybe think about that we don't necessarily do well in today's politics that we might learn from that era. Well, one of the obvious things, and, and you worked for it, Alan Simpson and, and others who were bipartisan, very, very tough partisan politicians, but they, they really believed in reaching across the aisle and having fun and having dinner and such. But uh, that's one thing. I think Nixon's fight is intense partisanship, uh, also was was willing to 
and had many friends on the other side of the aisle. Jack Kennedy among them, the guy who beat him in 1960. They had offices next to each other on the Hill. Um, these days we find, I can't remember the names, but we found two congresswomen who had next door adjacent offices. One, this uh, eccentric uh, conservative Republican, the other uh, a much more liberal Democrat. Finally, the one had to say, separate us. I can't be around this woman. Um, I don't think Nixon ever got to that stage in his relationship with folks on the other side of the aisle. But more to the substance, uh, what I've found intriguing as I've been writing this book and, and then looking at right now is the long road around the barn that the Republicans have taken since Reagan's initial opposition to Nixon's welfare reform back in 1969. Ronald Reagan did not buy into Nixon's idea of a universal basic income. Rather, he used it as a tactic to peel away Republicans from Nixon's view of where the party should be and should go. And so there began this long, multi-decade, as I say, uh, walk, long walk around the barn, uh, in which the government was the enemy, and in which uh, tax cuts were meant to basically move the economy in a direction that would benefit everybody. And there was less and less concern with those left right at the margins who were at risk even of, of hunger and of destitution. And I think what's happening is that, you know, what what Nixon talked about 50 years ago could come back and be a tool, an analytical tool, and maybe even a blueprint for some of those like Mitt Romney or Hawley even, or Rubio in the Republican Party, and certainly many Democrats who would like to find a way forward to address what at last 50 years later, people are worrying about again, about the impact on a child of, its, of being raised in poverty and hunger, and the impact later of that child maybe being in prison or you know, in need of psychiatric care and so forth. So there, there's a, a massive moving of a circle here. I've been fascinated by it. I see the Republican Party coming back around to a, a serious interest in looking at this issue. Do you see any heirs to Nixon and any political party right now where you look at them occasionally and in a good way, uh, say, hmm, that's interesting. Nixon might have appreciated that or that reminds you of Nixon or, or you see echoes of his synthesis of rising populism with his establishment ties? I should have seen that one coming, Jim. <laughs> I, I haven't thought it through, and I, I don't have clearly, uh, clearly conceived views on, on who might be his, his successors in a way. Um, to me, there, there's just a handful. I can't even name them. You know, maybe, maybe an Asa Hutchinson or a Ben Sass or certainly a Mitt Romney, and uh, in their ways. Romney, in fact, in very many ways like Nixon, because as governor, of course, he proposed a health care uh, for Massachusetts, which was quite similar to and based on the Nixon idea. Uh, in the Democratic Party, there's there's certainly a handful, I think, um, 
Joe Biden is is uh, looking like he's you know a trimmer in the sense that Nixon was. He's trying to find the way between the factions of his party and American politics writ large. Uh, but I don't I don't have any clear. Yeah, here's the guy or here's the woman uh, for you to focus on. Sorry. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about John Price. You are a person who has had an extraordinary career. It began, obviously, in no small part with President Nixon. You've been a titan of the banking world for many years. You retired as president and CEO of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Pittsburgh. Let's go back for a moment. If you could look back, and you're a very good historian, so you can literally look back, what would you tell your 20-year-old self with what you know today? I would say what I think I instinctively felt along the way. I would say uh, take risk, uh, be interested in the larger questions, uh, take history seriously, don't ignore it. Uh, try and understand where it suggests things are going or ought to be going. Um, but just don't be too sure. I mean, I I remember kids. My grown son would say, "Oh, I've got a classmate. They were in seventh grade. That boy knew he was going to be a medical doctor. Bingo!" And he did. And that's not me. It's not you. Uh, I, I've been willing, as I say, to to take risk, to and to have fun in life. I've I've done crazy things. I'm a solo aerobatic pilot. I've done things like uh, riding horses bareback from the time I was two and a half years old. Uh, I'm I'm a I don't have a bow tie on today. I usually have a, a jacket and tie, but I I am not your usual. Uh, you know, tied down kind of person. Are there significant matters relating to business or politics or life in general on which you've changed your mind over time? A much more understanding of different opinions. I, I think that uh, I think I, I was raised in a very accepting household, a very broad-minded household, even though my, my folks, my mom was a Presbyterian, my dad was a Methodist, and they'd been raised in a pretty straightforward way. But I, I think that I, uh, I've i just realized as I've gotten older that everybody, every single human being has, uh, if I can use a Christian expression, a cross to bear in their lives. They have something they have to deal with, some issues. And so I think just empathy, empathy and feeling for other people is just one of the most crucial qualities that anyone can nourish and build on. And I think it's particularly obvious right now uh, where you've seen on the news, you know, the, the deaths and the little life stories about big lives of, of simple people. And so just, you know, empathize. Well, among the ways in which you're a trailblazer is that, if I might say it, you're on the older side at a moment when populations in the U.S. and elsewhere are becoming older. What is your thinking about 
how to use this time of life when people can add value over a much longer stretch than, say, our parents or grandparents were able to. And do you have any exemplars on this, or is it totally a matter where one has to be a pioneer of sorts? Oh, my goodness, no. I, uh, growing up, I, one of my heroes was Albert Schweitzer, uh, who was a Swiss polymath. He was a church organist. He was a, a medical doctor, and he was a professor of theology and lived a long life serving uh, people in Lombardy in West Africa. And so that was one of the earliest person of great longevity that, that I admired. But I've had examples happily throughout my whole life. I remember the choir director in my church uh, who started an opera company at age 80, was invited to a reunion of a bunch of college kids whom he had left 25 years earlier, but they loved him. And I remember staying with him at this reunion, which was a choir master class. He was 89 years old. He was up at six in the morning studying his score for working with the choir. I've had many, many happy examples. Uh, the guy who was my Sunday school superintendent, Lindsley Kimball, worked for John D. Rockefeller. And he started the blood bank. He started Colonial Williamsburg. And he was playing tennis into his 90s. And I must say, had a, a nice eye for the girls. I had a beautiful Estonian woman with me one night, and he was duly impressed in his lady. But uh, so I've, I've been lucky to have exemplars all along the way who've been using their their later years. Um, and I've tried to use mine doing just this. You know, I've spent 10 years in, with increasing urgency for the last three or four writing this book, and I'm going to probably try another one over a longer arc about the American, the last part of the American century and my small role in it. Oh, to look forward to based on this fine first book. What other books or creative works have been particularly influential on you that you would recommend for others? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> well, I, it, it's sort of on point, not really. But Vladimir Nabokov, who's the, the novelist, uh, who most famously wrote Lolita, which I've never read. But what intrigued me about him was that he uh, he wrote a book called Speak Memory. And it's an autobiography of his starting his life as a young boy in very well-to-do Tsarist Russia in Petersburg, St. Petersburg. But he had such a, a sense of understanding what he'd been given and building on it and so on. That's just wonderful. The, the, other, uh, the other author that I've really come to love is Isaiah Berlin. And Isaiah Berlin was a political philosopher who was born in Riga in Latvia. His dad was a timber merchant. His first language was Russian. <laughs> And he, uh, he wound up at Oxford University where he regaled students with his lectures. And I've taken to going back and reading his work. Most interestingly, his book on Russian thinkers, it's a little tiny paperback volume in which he outlines my philosophy, and I think that of any moderate, which was an abject horror of absolutism, an abject horror about uh, thinking that the means justify the ends and that there will be in the fullness of time 
the full flower of the fruits of a revolution. He didn't believe it. He thought it was diddly squat. And I totally agree with that. That's why I, I am influenced heavily by him in this period of anger and of extreme politics, whether it's progressivism or, or wokeism or whether it's, uh, you know, right wing uh, revanchism. Uh, so Isaiah Berlin remains a, a hugely important figure in my in my life. Well, Claire Booth Luce, who was an important 20th century figure, the widow of, of Henry Luce, famously instructed John Kennedy that everyone, including presidents, is ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your single sentence to be? Why? Yours. He loved life. He was intrigued by it. He worked within it. And he worked for the lives of others. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment. And it's expressed so well. You're clearly one of those people with the gift and the talent of speaking and thinking and writing and entire sentences and paragraphs. Uh, as we close, are there any other topics that we've not discussed that you want to be sure to leave us with? And we'll, of course, remind everyone the occasion of this is John Price's wonderful new book, The Last Liberal Republican, an insider's perspective on Nixon's surprising social policy, new from the University Press of Kansas. Jim, no further thoughts. Uh, you've led a discussion uh, in which I may have dominated too much, but I, I'm so appreciative to you for allowing me this time with you and to be provoked, as you've done so well, into, into thinking uh, some things I've laid out. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you, John Price. And again, I can't recommend highly enough this outstanding book. You can go straight to Amazon or elsewhere and pick it up. And John Price, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks you to our listeners for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us at Twitter uh, or on our website, servetolead.org. And until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.